0: There are so many ways you can support HUG. All you have to do is visit our website, heartsunitetheglobe.com, to see how you too can help empower, educate, and enrich the lives of individuals in the CHD and bereaved communities. Thank you all for your continued support. Welcome to the 13th episode of Heart to Heart with Anna, a show for the congenital heart defect community. Our purpose is to empower members of our community with resources, support, and advocacy information. According to the University of Rochester Medical Center's Health Encyclopedia on Growth and Development in Children with Congenital Heart Disease, children with congenital heart disease often grow and develop more slowly than other children. For example, children with congenital heart defects, or CHDs, may look much younger, thinner, and perhaps frailer than other children the same age. The child's doctor may say that the child's height and weight are in lower percentiles, meaning that a significant number of children in the United States are taller or heavier than a CHD child. Children with CHDs may be slower to reach developmental milestones than healthy children, such as rolling over, sitting, walking, talking, and toilet training. Additionally, children with CHDs may fall behind in their development for several reasons, including associated genetic syndromes, also affecting cognitive and motor development, inadequate nutrition not meeting the body's energy requirements or allowing for proper growth and development of muscles, bones, and brain and nerve cells, inadequate nutrition not meeting the body's energy requirements, causing children to tire quickly or not be able to physically keep up with others their same age illness and frequent or prolonged hospitalizations may prevent the child from receiving stimuli that help with development, such as being played with, talked to, held, or touched. One of the things that the website doesn't mention, but which I feel is very important, is that our children's growth and development is interrupted. Most children have continuous opportunities for learning, but due to the nature of our children's birth defects, their opportunities for learning are interrupted by open-heart surgeries, being on ventilators, paralyzing drugs, And they have to deal with recovery times, which set them back in their opportunities to grow and learn. Children without heart defects don't have these issues to deal with. So comparing our children with CHDs to children who don't have these interruptions of growth and development really isn't fair. That's why today's episode, What is Normal Child Development for Survivors with Complex Congenital Heart Defects, is so important. Today, we'll meet three individuals who have firsthand knowledge of developmental issues involved with children born with complex CHDs. On our show is returning guest and heart mom, Eileen Perlman, who today will share her experience and advice as a speech-language pathologist, working with children with speech and language issues as well as children who are born with CHDs. We will also meet heart mom, Vicki Lucas, who is also a special education teacher who has experience in working with children with learning disabilities and CHDs. And finally, we'll meet Dawn Alardi, who will be joining us today to share her experience working with children with CHDs as a neuropsychologist. Eileen Perlman has two daughters, Jessica and Amy Cohen. While pregnant with Jessica, she thought everything was fine. Jessica was born on June 7, 1983. Doctors began monitoring her heart due to an irregular heartbeat. Three days later, after extensive testing, she had emergency surgery because she had hypoplastic left heart syndrome. But nine years before Jessica was born, Eileen was already a practicing speech-language pathologist. She began her career as a speech-language pathologist in 1974, and she works primarily with students who have special or multiple needs. We'll meet Vicki Lucas and Dr. Don Alarde later in our show. Thank you, Eileen, for coming back on our show. Sure, Anna. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, many of our children with complex CHDs or CCHDs have feeding issues, due to being intubated for a long time can you tell us how that situation can lead to speech and language problems and what parents can do to minimize possible problems
2: sure it's really important to understand that babies learn to eat before they learn to talk this is really important in the development or the strengthening of the muscles used in speech because they're the muscles in the face and so if A baby is not eating orally because it's intubated or because of feeding tubes, then some of the feeding problems can include the baby being too weak to eat due to a heart problem, which really isn't because of the intubation, but this can be a problem for a heart baby. Weak muscles that are needed for babies to suck, reflux or GERD, failure to thrive, As you said earlier, the babies being slower to develop and gain weight, that was certainly an issue with my daughter. She was a very slow weight gainer. And then swallowing issues can be often a factor. It doesn't mean that every heart child is going to have these problems. They're often seen in other conditions too. As far as minimizing the problems, if a G-tube or an NG-tube is necessary, you kind of have to wait till the medical issues are resolved to begin to feed the baby by mouth. And it can happen with older children too, that they're intubated for a long time and then they have feeding tubes too. But the best thing to do is to work with a speech language pathologist who is trained to do feeding therapy. If you go through early intervention, which is really a very important thing, and I think it's available in every state. Early intervention can provide parents with the proper guidance. They'll have feeding specialists or speech-language pathologists who are feeding specialists, and then sometimes OT gets involved with that occupational therapy and even sometimes physical therapy with positioning for feeding. There's a lot of information online. You have to be really careful about that. There's some good information, but also it's important just to follow the team approach to what is best for each individual child.
0: I love that you say that because the parents are a very special part of the team. We are with our children 24 hours a day, every day, and we have to become the experts. Wouldn't you say that, Eileen? We have to become experts. That's, that's really important. And
2: if your gut is telling you something is wrong, then it's always wise to get a second opinion.
0: Absolutely. You know, in a lot of the bigger cities, they actually have feeding clinics. So if you live in Atlanta, I know for a fact they have a, a wonderful feeding clinic. But if you live in a big city or near a big city, you might also check and see if you have availability to go to a feeding clinic. I would think that that would be really beneficial for our children with feeding I issues. I agree. Eileen, children with complex CHDs develop oral aversions. Can you tell us what that means? Why children would have that problem and how parents can help minimize the oral aversions their children may have? Yes.
2: What happens a lot of times is because tubes are being put in and taken out of the baby's mouth or nose. Things are being taped to their cheeks. A lot of times they associate eating with people doing things that are painful or uncomfortable. It's very common to develop oral aversions. A lot depends on the child's age. I was reading something yesterday that said that oral aversions can develop because of all this intervention and what's important is that the babies are losing time to suck because Lots of things are being done to their face, so they can't really eat the way most babies do. So they lose out on the sucking. And then sometimes, because they're a little bit older, they might start losing out at points on their eating. So their muscles are underdeveloped. And you can talk to your doctors about non-nutritive Sucking, which is like you might use a pacifier or a really clean finger dipped in something and putting it in the baby's mouth, it's really a good thing to do that. Touch their cheeks, touch their mouths, kiss them on their face. Don't be afraid to get in and stimulate some of those muscles because that will, down the line, really help them if they. Start to develop some of these aversions. They said in something I read that they don't have a memory of some of this stuff because they're babies, but there is body memory was what mm-hmm. I was reading. Even though it's not a conscious thing, it's sometimes a problem because it's just kind of an instinct that it was not pleasurable. So the babies have to be made or the children to feel pleasure from people touching their face. This doesn't mean everybody should be touching their face. You know, mom and dad, certainly, and maybe grandparents, but it's a good idea.
0: And I have seen in the hospital that sometimes the nurses would give the babies a pacifier, even mm-hmm. if they have tubes, just to stimulate that sucking reflex, because yes. it is important for them to not lose that reflex if possible. So Eileen, in your experience in working with children with complex CHDs, how does their speech and language development differ from children who don't have heart defects?
2: I worked in special ed. I've been working in special ed for years and years and we had a lot of kids with (laughs) zippers. I don't know that it was because of the heart problems. Oftentimes, there are multiple needs because as you said, there are other syndromes or things involved. Sometimes, Breath support can be a factor, which is really important when you're talking. Again, the muscle weakness can be a problem if there were intubations or feeding tubes. I really encourage people to look at their children as an individual and not compare. There are all kinds of statistics and growth charts and all kinds of things for speech and language that are very accessible online, but... If you're expecting your child to fall within the norms, it doesn't always happen. It's important not to compare your child to other children or siblings especially, but just to be aware if there are problems, the sooner you address them, the better, which is why early intervention is really important. In Illinois, when children hit the age of three, they're eligible for services in the public schools. So... Rather than worry about it, seek out professional help. I don't know that I would notice that kids with heart defects have any more trouble than any other kids. My daughter seemed to develop, although she was hard to understand sometimes when she was little, but, you know, that's kind of typical when you're learning to talk. But sometimes you go through a period where you're sort of hard to understand, and then you work your way out of it. But if there's any doubt, you... Go and seek professional opinions or evaluations.
0: That's excellent advice. And I agree with you 100%. My son had vocal cord paralysis and he had partial paralyzed diaphragm. So even though he was developing speech normally until he had the surgery where those were some complications.
2: Right. I haven't professionally seen that, but I know (laughs) it exists.
0: Well, that's good. And I think it's not the norm for certain. It is something that happens with some children, but it is not the norm. Well, thank you so much for sharing your experience and advice with us, Eileen. And I do agree with you. I think the parents know their children. And if they do have a gut instinct that something is wrong, that's when you should go and have it checked out with the professionals. And early childhood intervention is definitely a good idea with our kids. Mm Mm-hmm. Now it's time for us to take a commercial break, but don't leave because coming up, we have a heart mom who will share with us academic problems that she has seen in children with Heart to Fix. Find out what she saw, what those problems were that she had with her own son when we return to Heart to Heart with him.
1: Anna Jaworski has spoken around the world at congenital heart defect events, and she is available as a keynote or guest speaker for your event. Go to hearttoheartwithanna.com to learn more about booking Anna for your event. You can also find out more about the radio program. Keep up to date with CHD resources and information about advocacy groups, as well as read Anna's weekly blog. Anna wants you to stay well-connected and participate in the CHD community. Visit Heart to heart with anna.com today. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Anna. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our show, please send an email to Anna Jaworski at Anna at Hearttoheartwithanna.com. That's Anna at Hearttoheartwithanna dot com. Now back to Heart to Heart with Anna.
0: Welcome back to our show Heart to Heart with Anna, a show for the congenital heart defect community. Today we are talking with Heart Mom and Speech Language Pathologist Eileen Perlman, Heart Mom and Special Education Teacher Vicki Lucas, and neuropsychologist Dr. Don Alardi about normal child development in complex CHD survivors. We just finished talking with Eileen Perlman about her experience as a speech pathologist working with children with complex CHDs, and now we will turn our attention to Vicki Lucas. Vicki Lucas is a special education teacher and mom to teenage sons, 14-year-old Ian, 16-year-old Alex, and 18-year-old Zach. Vicki and Steve have been married 20 years, weathering the challenges and thrills of raising three sons, including a child with a complex congenital heart defect. Over 15 years of classroom experience and private tutoring have given Vicki insight into the challenges and learning styles and needs of her students. Alex was born with hypoplastic left heart syndrome. He has had four open-heart surgeries and multiple catheterizations. Alexander has seen the gamut of learning environments from specialized preschool, learning language development, self-contained classroom, resource room, in-class support, culminating in a 504 status. For a child expected to use a picture exchange communication system, or PECS communication system, Alex has since progressed to honors and talented and gifted classes alex is planning to attend college we'll meet dr don alardi in our next segment thank you vicky for coming on heart to heart with anna
3: hi anna it's a pleasure to be here
0: well it is so exciting for me to see how many different opportunities alex had to test out this system the educational system and to see that it worked it has been wonderful I know. As a specialty teacher myself, it's always so gratifying to see that all of the efforts that we put into helping our students with special needs really can pay off. And for Alex to be at the point where he's an honor student, he's a TAG student, and he's making plans to go to college, that is so exciting. Uh, It sure is. I was shocked to see that Alex needed a picture exchange communication system. Those systems are typically used for children who have severe expressive language problems. So can you tell us a little bit about Alex's speech development and whether or not his speech and language development problems early in life resulted in academic problems when he became school age?
3: Sure. Alex was in early intervention. He was identified almost immediately after birth. We were contacted, and they were very quick to begin the process of involving him. As Literally as soon as he was eligible, early intervention started coming to the home and working with him on physical therapy, occupational-type therapy, and speech therapy. We have had a very long, as Eileen said, it was a slow road with expressive language. His receptive language, as he became an older baby and a toddler, We could see his expressive language was intact and beautiful. He would respond to all commands, all requests. He would watch a TV show or a video with humor, and he would be in the room laughing. So we knew he was getting it. And I said, I just know it's in him, but we just could not, with a crowbar, get it out of him. The speech was almost trapped in a way where he could not find the words, could not formulate the normal process of coordinating phrases, me go, my dog, any kind of phraseology, it just became a real struggle for him. And he entered early intervention, he entered the preschool handicap program in our public school system, very close to our home, and the preschool learning program started him about three to six months after he started in their program, coming home with information about the PECs or picture exchange communication system. And with PECs or with the picture exchange system, symbols and pictures of items and gestures are put on small cards, and those cards are put on Velcro strips in a notebook so that the child can go to command sections and can go to topical sections like play or food, activities, pictures of mom, pictures of dad. I want cookie, and he would find And use hand-signed gestures, I want, and the picture of a cookie. So instead of playing, what do you want? Do you want a banana, an apple, a cookie, a piece of pizza? It was, I want, and he could find that. We never let up. And I think parents, as a mom and as a teacher, you've got to be hands-on. You've got to, you just can't let up. It's your investment and your child. And we used the picture system. We used flashcards. I believe that gave him a jump on Preschool, when he started in kindergarten, they enrolled him in a language and learning development program, slash half-day kindergarten, and we repeated that for two years. So by the time he was in the second year of the kindergarten process, he was really, really just about on track with his peers. For most of the development, we still continued to be the most difficult-to-schedule child in the school with PT, OT, speech, and alternate PE. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's a lot to have to deal with. But boy, he understood a lot about scheduling with all of that, didn't he? He was very,
3: I can't say enough, I was very blessed. I know people don't always have success stories in the public school system. And we have decided that because of my educational background that if we ever had to, it would be an option that I would homeschool him as a possibility or do a combination of the two types of services. But Eileen had mentioned the speech delays and possible effects with intubation, and I feel like that was possibly quite definitely part of it. The normal speech development, even the development of the teeth and the palate and and the epiglottis, all of those items were affected in this process. But we now, as a teenager, and we have a major gag reflex at the dentist, Mm -hmm. I believe that, like she said, there's a body-memory association.
0: Yeah, that muscle memory is lasting, and that's Uh why when kids learn karate or gymnastics, they have them do the same exercise over and over, so the brain doesn't even have to think about it. The body just knows what to do. Unfortunately, that can work against us Mm -hmm. (laughs) in exactly what you're talking about with the gag reflex or with the aversions to certain parts of the face being touched or even with the tongue. People don't realize how many muscles are just in the tongue itself, so... That definitely can cause some problems. So, Vicki, you've been working with students with heart defects and learning disabilities for a long time. So, can you tell us what kinds of problems you've seen with children who have complex congenital heart defects and what parents can do to help their children? Absolutely. With CHD, the complex defects
3: are often, as Eileen also said, and you said, they're multiple in nature. I've worked with children with long term behavioral problems, they experience higher levels of frustration. There's the frustration of their own limitation that they might face, and frustration of the work feels extremely overwhelming. There's a physical frustration. There is a tendency for children to be misdiagnosed, and often they are correctly diagnosed with attention deficit disorder or hyperactivity disorder. That this may not be true at ADHD. This is the body's inability to handle the stamina and endurance necessary, sometimes just to sit in a classroom and continuously, it's mentally and physically exhausting to listen to someone for 15 or 20 minutes. So the children will be fidgety and children should be allowed to be a little fidgety in their seat. And some children use special cushions for seating so that there's that texture feeling when they're seated and the chair's not so hard. They also might have a little nubby ball or something fuzzy that they can squish and squeeze in their hand for stress relief. I've seen academic performances that vary And it does depend upon the complexity of the defect, the amount of time the child was on a heart-lung bypass, oxygen deprivation, and the time the child has spent in the hospital. I know Alexander's first hospitalization was around 28 days, and this was in 1997. He also, at that time, had an emergency surgery revision, so had the first surgery and then had a revision. Six to eight months later, had another second-stage surgery, and then a year later had the final stage surgery. And each one of those, he was in the hospital about 14 days. But some children are in the hospital for months, and this can affect gross motor development, fine motor development, toilet chaining. We can see children with ataxia. In fact, Alexander was told at one point that they saw symptoms of ataxia. He's also had a diagnosis of family found venous hemangioma in the brain, So there's a link. There is definitely a link between this oxygenation and the brain development. As for parents, I think parents are the child's best mouthpiece. Their advocate is their parent. And the children best understood and best represented by their parents. Parents should read, and with caution and an open mind, the things that they can ask people, ask experts, ask their doctor, ask if their doctor doesn't know, their doctor needs to try to help them find a source learn as much as you can, understand, support networks, support groups, find a special service team member. If you're in a preschool learning handicap program, find a representative. Often a school district has a special services parent association or representative person. Or find someone, another heart mom. I have been an advocate. I've gone in many IEP individual education plan meetings, been in many IEP meetings, and just sat there as a voice of reason and a moderator of sorts to help parents navigate this field because even being in special education, the IEP meetings are intimidating, and the strategies, I was fortunate that I was able to even go into meetings with strategies already drafted. Many, many parents, more than we ever know, are not prepared for the experience of going in and dealing with a team is going to guide and direct your child's education. And I fully believe that you've got a good special education teacher and you know your child the best and be the number one advocate for your child. There are various educational strategies and you might want to zero in on those as well.
0: Well, I love what you said about having another heart mom or an advocate in with the parent because it can be overwhelming. I'm a special ed teacher too, but you mm-hmm. are many different terms that are used. that You and I know what those mean, but somebody who's not in the educational field wouldn't know what some of those things mean and might be frightened. Plus, it's a little emotionally taxing to sit and have one professional after another give a critique of your child's progress. It is
3: like a critique. It's almost, I've likened it to a tribunal. (laughs) (laughs) And many parents have gone through special education for various things, congenital heart defect and other disabilities, illnesses, or conditions, know that you are on one side of a table in most cases, and almost everyone else is on the side and around the other side of the table, so it can feel overwhelmed. I ask parents that I work with as a teacher and as a friend to gather the resources that they have on their child, gather your medical documentation, put it in a three-ring binder with tabs, their early birth records, those kinds of things. Everything they can think of, put it in a coordinated record. And many hospitals in the patient advocacy department will have a almost a notebook, like a tote binder kind of setup that they will pass. I know Children's Hospital in Philadelphia has a setup like that where they will give parents a pre-organized notebook that the parents go home and fill in with this information. And medical records are in that binder, and you just pick it up on the handle and go. You can go into your IEP meetings, you can go to your doctor visits, and everything gets filed in one location so there's no scrambling. Parents also, those terms, learn as much as you can. And I love being an advocate for parents and for children because we have to give these kids a voice. There's so many areas where we need to work to help educate our educational system, our educational staff on the needs of our kids, and not to be afraid of our children because they are often very, very afraid, whether it's in physical education or in the classroom or in the hallway, that our children will have an episode that is chronic and critical. And the more you inform these talented professionals that work with our children, the more you inform these people, it empowers them. And when they see this child in the hallway, they know whether that child is pale or not and whether that child is going to faint or not. So we really teach people to be in tune with the kids.
0: Well, I love everything that you just said. That is so correct. And it really does take a village. Yes. In this case, you need more than just your classroom teacher to be aware because the classroom teacher could be out sick. Yes, so and that's you, very you, important. Very Right. In mm-hmm. the school, the school nurse and other people need to be aware of what your child's coloring is. For a lot of our kids with CCHDs, they look a little blue. That's just normal for them.
3: Right. Right. I had a school nurse who would call me when his pulse rate would get to 55, and I would say, don't worry, but she would insist that I would take him to his cardiologist, and it was fine, and we did, and it's a good thing because I tell the people that work with my own son, and there are the children that have different conditions with a heart defect as well, that, yes, I'd rather be safe than sorry. Right. This schoolwork is going to be here, and a good special education teacher and a good in-class support teacher will modify the assignments for the children, and many of them with the stamina endurance issues, it's not just physical of nature, it's also mental and emotional. So we need to chunk the information and chunk the testing that we give to kids, break it down into biteable parts, and a child will, as they grow, as in my Alexander's case, a child will tell you how much they can or cannot handle, but also to never let them use this as a crutch.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Vicki, thank you so much for sharing your experiences and advice. It is time for me to take a commercial break. Stay tuned to find out what a neuropsychologist from one of the leading children's hospitals in the United States has to say what normal development is for children with complex congenital heart defects when we return to Heart to Heart with Anna.
1: a handbook for parents will help you understand that you are not alone. Visit babyheartspress.com to find out more. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Anna. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our show, please send an email to Anna Jaworski at Anna at heart to heart with Anna.com. That's Anna. At hearttoheartwithanna.com. Now back to Heart to Heart with Anna.
0: Welcome back to our show, Heart to Heart with Anna, a show for the congenital heart defect community. Today we are talking with Heart Mom and speech language pathologist Eileen Perlman, Heart Mom and special education teacher Vicki Lucas, and neuropsychologist Dr. Don Alardi about normal child development and complex chd survivors we just finished talking with vicky lucas about her experience as a special education teacher and a mom raising a son with a complex chd and we also talked with eileen perlman about her experiences working with children with speech and language problems as well as having a complex congenital heart defect and now we will meet dr don alardi dr don alardi is a senior pediatric neuropsychologist at children's health care of atlanta and sibley heart center She specializes in working with children who have complex CHDs requiring cardiac surgery or transplantation. Her focus is the assessment of children's abilities, including cognitive, emotional, and social functioning, thus helping families and schools understand each child's strengths and weaknesses. She makes recommendations to support children's needs. She also works with children before discharge from the hospital, addressing families' concerns and facilitating a transition back to school. Dr. Alardi and other professionals from leading children's hospitals are building developmental follow up programs for children with CHDs to make sure they get the necessary assessment and intervention support needed from infancy to young adulthood. Dr. Alardi collaborates with others to collect research to better understand the needs of children and young adults with CHDs. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna, Dr. Alardi. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm so excited to have someone with your knowledge come on the show because we have so many concerns as parents. What is normal for our children? Do you have a rule of thumb regarding when parents should become concerned about their baby or young child's development and seek additional help?
4: You're right that normal is relative, and there's definitely what we're learning is a normal or typical range of behaviors for the CHD child as well, and as you've already discussed quite a bit already on this interview piece, that CHD children do show developmental differences and due to a number of different reasons, one important rule of thumb is to ask for help if you have any concerns. We've already reviewed some of the developmental concerns that could come across, but just to be comprehensive, some of the early developmental motor concerns we often see would be, for example, in infancy, an extreme dislike of being on the stomach, using only one side of the body being slow to walk and poorly coordinated, maybe difficulty learning to ride a bike eventually. Fine motor difficulties, again, these are all within the realm of what's normal for the CHD child. You might see problems picking up small items, learning to self-feed, learning to tie shoes and button clothing, and then ultimately learning to use a crayon or a pencil and develop good handwriting. Oral motor problems, you guys have talked about extensively already. And so you're going to see difficulties learning to chew, make speech sounds. And then ultimately, as development progresses, you're going to see possible challenges, understanding language as well as using language. And that might just be a slow rate of progress or there might be some real impairments that we want to support. So that rule of thumb would be if you have concerns, you want to talk to your cardiologist or pediatrician and you want to contact an earlier intervention program during those first years of your child's life. intervention programs do change names across states, but if you were to inquire about early intervention in your state, you'll find what you need. This will result in a developmental evaluation by a specialist, and if delays are found, they will connect you with therapies such as speech and language therapy, occupational therapy, or physical therapy. And the earlier these concerns are addressed, the earlier your child's needs are going to be supported. So that is my big rule of thumb is to not ignore your concerns.
0: Absolutely. I agree 100%. One problem that I've seen in the past is that some parents don't actually have a pediatrician. They just take a child to a general practice doctor and those doctors seem to be more forgiving of early developmental issues and they have encouraged parents, oh, just wait, it just Mm -hmm. takes longer, and you really don't want to wait because you're losing valuable time if you wait, especially when your gut is telling you something is wrong.
4: I agree with you, Anna. What I usually tell families who cross my path, and they may have a difference of opinion compared to maybe one of their medical team staff, is that if you have concerns, the worst case is that you spent a day at an evaluation, and they said your child didn't need services, And isn't that what we all want to hear? We want to have our concerns pushed aside. So yes, if you have concerns, you don't have to go to the pediatrician or your primary care doctor. You can call early intervention services by your state and initiate that evaluation yourself.
0: Exactly. You've stated in your bio that you're working with other professionals from leading children's hospitals to build developmental follow-up programs for children with complex CHDs. Can you tell us exactly what hospitals are using those programs and whether or not parents can have access to the information you've acquired?
4: Well, that's tricky, Anna, because there's a growing number of hospitals throughout the nation and beyond that are developing these programs. So as we speak, there are hospitals that are trying to build these follow-up programs. So I'm actually not sure right now how many programs there are. Many of the major children's hospitals who have large cardiac programs do at least have some component of the cardiac follow-up programs. I am currently working with a group of psychologists from about eight other children's hospitals and what we're trying to do is to increase the collaboration and build resources because now that we're recognizing the need for these follow-up programs, hospitals are wanting a place to reach out to to inquire how the development unfolded and how they reached out to communities to let them know about these resources. One thing we're also working on is to publish parent-friendly information about the developmental needs of CHD kids across the lifespan. This has just been submitted for publication, so I can't tell you the results yet, but I'll certainly stay in touch with you, Anna. So should we move through the publication process, I want to make sure that those would be accessible to your viewers, if that's helpful.
0: Oh, I would love that. And what I could do is when you send me that information, I'll post it in my blog and people can have access to it that way.
4: That would be wonderful. Another thing I'll just add that we're also working on with this group of hospitals is we're trying to collaborate to better understand the outcomes of these children. We've spent a lot of time focusing on the younger children. And I think now we're just starting to understand some of the school-age, adolescent, and adult Needs. And so we're trying to collect some research so we know how to provide timely intervention that is going to work to maximize child development in these kids.
0: I love that because it does seem like they get a lot of attention when they're in that interstage between surgeries and the first year of life. And Mm then a lot of our kids, especially our single ventricle kids, once they have the fontan at two or three years of age, then a lot of times it doesn't seem like they get as much attention, but they may still need attention in certain areas, especially those pre-academic and academic areas. We've spent a lot of time talking about the early stages of development, but could you tell us what you have learned is normal academically for children with CCHDs, and if you could give us any advice or special considerations that parents need to take into account for their early elementary school age children? That would be great. Sure as
4: the children are moving into school age, generally things are getting harder. And as was already mentioned by Vicki, you're starting to see the children almost grow into some of their deficits because the challenges are increasing. So as they're moving into school, sometimes you might see more attention problems, difficulty staying on task. A lot of these kids, especially the kids with early language difficulties, are having problems learning to read. And handwriting is usually problematic because Most children have some fine motor difficulties to some extent. As the years are progressing and school is getting harder, you might see they have trouble keeping up with the pace of learning, and they really struggle to gain the independence in their homework and in their schoolwork, and the transfer from school to home, it can be so challenging. Whether Mm -hmm. the child seems disorganized and forgetful and overwhelmed, they might also just need tremendous repetition for simple information to sink in and for the child to be able to demonstrate that on an actual test. Some children are developing learning disabilities or attention disorders, and they really benefit from having a school plan that identifies their own unique needs, like Vicki mentioned, such as an IEP or a Section 504 plan. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, because the learning profile of these children can be fairly complex, Relying on schools alone to complete the evaluation or the assessment can be problematic. Schools tend to be a little bit confused by these kids. They are complicated. Oftentimes, there is a delay in services. There might be mislabeling, or sometimes the recommendations and in the interventions or accommodations are not quite on target, not because they're not in the right place in terms of wanting to support the child but only because there are different mechanisms or developmental trajectories through which these children develop their learning differences. And ideally, we want these kids to be evaluated by a psychologist who understands congenital heart disease or by a psychologist who understands complex medical children, so perhaps one who's associated with the hospital where the child had surgery.
0: I think that's an excellent point. Sometimes the schools can't handle kids who are as complex as our children. And Mm -hmm. we really do need the additional support that only somebody who works in a hospital setting and works with a large variety of chronically ill children, because it's not just children with congenital heart defects who have some of these problems. There are children with other health issues that face the same kind of challenges that our heart kids do. You're right. That was so informative. I really appreciate you sharing, though, how we really need to work together as a team, the schools, the parents, the hospitals, the doctors. There does get to be quite an impressive group of people who get to know our children pretty well.
4: You're absolutely right. And just to wrap up, if I could, I think that it's really important for families to appreciate the child's resiliency, too. We've talked a lot about the child's weaknesses, but the families and the children who have experienced these life-changing medical events, they they are indeed incredibly resilient. And we want to capitalize on those strengths in order to support the weaknesses, as they're moving through their development.
0: I love that. Absolutely. We do need to focus on the positive and our kids are survivors. And yes, there are strengths there as well that we can capitalize on. And for some of us, we go crazy with some of those strengths. Like my son is extremely tenacious. Well, I'm glad he's tenacious because he was able to survive his surgeries. But sometimes that can also be considered stubbornness. <laughs> sure, there's
4: a balance. You are absolutely right.
0: But I think that is something that we need to keep in the back of our minds, that if you only focus on the child's weaknesses, it can paint a darker picture of what your child really is. And really, we have very bright pictures of our children because they have survived and they have overcome tremendous obstacles, many of them. Thank you, Don, for being on the show. You have been absolutely. a beautiful, shining light out there for us to look to. And I can't wait to see the research that you come out with. I know it's going to be so helpful to so many of our listeners. Unfortunately, it's time for me to go to another commercial break. I could talk to any of these ladies for another hour at least, but yeah. we we do have to go to another break. But don't go away because we do have our Miracle Moment coming up. Today's Miracle Moment is an edited version of an essay in The Heart of a Mother. Find out what delays Carolyn, Aaron's daughter, Hannah had and what she did about them when we returned to Heart to Heart with Hannah.
4: Texas Heart Institute were offering us a mechanical heart and he said, no dad, I've had enough give it to someone who's worthy.
3: My father promised me a golden dress to twirl it. He held my hand and asked me where I wanted to go
4: whatever strife or conflict that we experienced in our long career together was always healed by humor.
1: Heart to Heart with Michael. Please join us every Thursday at noon Eastern as we talk with people from around the world who have experienced those most difficult moments. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Anna. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our show, please send an email to Anna Jaworski at Anna at HeartToHeartWithAnna.com. That's Anna at HeartToHeartWithAnna.com. Now, back to Heart to Heart with Anna.
0: Welcome back to the 13th episode of Heart to Heart with Anna, a show for the congenital heart defect community. Our purpose is to empower members of our community with resources, support, and advocacy information. I hope you heard the first three segments. I had three really powerful guests who not only shared information with our listeners, but really heard what each of the other guests was saying and was able to piggyback information. It's been a very exciting segment today. I'm really excited about today's show. But now it's time for our Miracle Moment. And our Miracle Moment is written by Carolyn Abram. She wrote an essay in the Developmental Delays Physical section of The Heart of a Mother, and her essay is on page 56, but I've had to edit it in order to fit our time needs. Carolyn writes, We stood over the warming bed and looked upon our four-day-old daughter. Two hours earlier, we did not know if she was going to live or die. Her heart had stopped beating, a complication from the Norwood procedure the day before. This was a first in a three-stage palliative reconstruction of her heart. She was born with hypoplastic left heart syndrome. A nurse came out of the intensive care unit to give us news that they had to reopen her chest to get her heart beating on its own. It took the doctors and nurses 35 minutes to stabilize her heart. It felt like forever. As we gazed down on our miracle child, hooked to monitors and IV poles, we thought of how the cardiac arrest would affect her brain. Actually, that didn't even enter my mind. It wasn't until the pediatric cardiologist came to talk to us that we began to wonder not whether she would wake up, but what mental faculties she would have when she awoke. Hannah's development was expected to be a little bit off, mainly due to her cardiac arrest. At the time, a neurologist was consulted for her case, and several electroencephalograms, or EEGs, were conducted to verify brain activity. The initial result showed abnormal brain patterns, common with a cerebral disturbance, meaning seizure activity, for which she was put on phenobarbital. The drug seemed to make her lethargic, even at 14 days of age. A follow-up EEG at 10 months showed normal wave patterns and no signs of Seizure, so we were able to discontinue the phenobarbital. Hannah hit many of the small milestones in the early months, smiling, laughing, sucking her hands, rolling over to her back, sitting unaided, holding a cup and spoon, the usual accomplishments. She did not, however, like to be on her stomach at all, and although she sat up, she could not get into a standing position on her own. To make matters worse, friends and family would continually ask if Hannah was crawling or if she had gone straight to walking yet. After a while, I found myself making excuses for her delayed development. It was obvious that we needed to have an evaluation done by physical and speech therapists. She was not going to just get up and start to walk and talk one day. This was a big moment for me. After all she had been through just to be alive, I was not sure I wanted a bunch of people telling me about more problems. But we needed professional help and waiting was not going to change that fact. I contacted a state agency that performed developmental evaluations and provided habilitative services. Hannah had her first evaluation at 14 months. It took place in our home with three therapists. There was a physical therapist, a speech therapist, and an occupational therapist. I was worried she would not want to play with them, but that was not the case. The comfort factor of being at home in familiar surroundings made things so much easier. They put her through two tests, the Patel Developmental Inventory and the Peabody Developmental Motor Scales. There was also an extensive parent interview and observation. As they were writing up their notes, the therapist gave a lot of positive feedback about Hannah's level of progress. That made me feel better because as an inexperienced mother, I was really worried that I was not doing things right and perhaps hindering her development. The results placed the development of Hannah's fine and gross motor skills at that of a six-month-old. My heart sank. The other areas, cognitive development, communication development, social or emotional development, and adaptive development all ranged from one to five months behind her age. The therapist explained that the tests are structured to grade on specific activities, so what they see and how the results come out may differ. The recommendation was for physical therapy once a week and a follow-up evaluation in six months. We worked with a physical therapist once a week and within three months, Hannah was crawling and trying to go upstairs. We had borrowed a big ball that was used during her sessions and I worked with her on it daily. It was the breakthrough we needed. I would bounce her on it, which she loved, and then lay her back and have her pull herself up like doing stomach crunches. The bouncing had two benefits, improved muscle tone and increased verbalization during the activity. We were given weekly assignments of exercises, which also seemed to help. She was crawling and pulling up all over the house. It was recommended that we get her high top sneakers to give her a better base for standing. She seemed to stand for longer periods with the added stability of the shoes. I started taking her to a pool for more exercise. One of her doctors said that water activity is one of the best exercises for cardiac kids. We also enrolled in an exercise class at a little gym once a week. This added physical play and interaction with other children her same age was really helpful to her. She watched the others very intently. Six months of therapy seemed to fly by, and the second evaluation was done when Hannah was 23 months old. As with the first one, the therapist came to our home for the tests. The same two tests were performed, but changed to be age appropriate. The parent interview and observation periods were also done. Because she was not walking, the motor skills test placed her at the 11 to 12 month age. And her speech skills were not up to her age group either. When mobility is lessened, it can hinder speech development. Again, it seemed we were at small step point progress. Her therapy was put on hold until after the completion of her final heart surgery, the Fontan. Two months after Hannah's Fontan, she started back with the therapy and also started attending a speech therapy play group. Her babbling increased tremendously, and we started adding some signing. The doctors agreed with our current course of treatment and therapy and speech play group. We were doing the best things possible for her right now. I really needed that affirmation. What surprised us was his insistence that we emphasize her speech therapy over her physical therapy. After he explained the importance of communication in daily life, this made sense. We just not had thought that far ahead. We had already noticed some frustration in Hannah's face when she tried to get a point across or wanted something and we didn't know what she was saying. As we were leaving his office, he reminded us that time with a therapist is important, but the parents are the real therapists for their children. And an enriching environment with lots of stimulation was crucial for her development. A few years from now, when I'm chasing a screaming Hannah down the aisle of the grocery store with a bag of cookies or down a ski slope yelling for her to slow down, I'll look back on her delayed start and wonder what the big deal was. And this concludes this episode of Heart to Heart with Anna. Please come back next week. Until then, please find and like us on Facebook, check out our website, Heart to Heart with Anna, and remember, my friends, you are not alone.
1: Thank you again for joining us this week. We hope you've been inspired and empowered to become an advocate for the congenital heart defect community. Heart to Heart with Anna with your host, Anna Jaworski, can be heard every Tuesday at 12 noon Eastern time. We'll talk again next week.